Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In this uh, message series, we are considering the major themes and uh, some of the events found in God's epic story in the pages of the Bible. Now, we, um, we love epic stories. Uh, the movies are one example of our appetite for epic stories. And the reason, I think, in part we love epic stories is we live with this dream that maybe we can be one of those people who go from obscurity into something significant and important that is contained in these epic stories that we read or that we watch. And so most people, you know, live with the hope or the dream or they're driven by trying to live a life that is large enough to be considered epic. But it's, it's never big enough, even if we are able to pull that off. And the reason is because God gave us this appetite, not just so that we could be famous, but so that we could be a part of something that's even bigger than us, be a part of God's epic story. So we began with the grand opening scene in the Bible, and that is creation. And in creation, we see the goodness of God reflected in the beauty all around us. And then we also see the love of God reflected in our capacity for relationship. But the next part of the story, we see that sin entered into the world, and things began to fall apart as a result. Now this world is a mixture of both good and bad. But rather than abandon this world to its decline, God chose a people to be the foundation from which he would bless this world. And they were given a name. The name was Israel, which means they struggle with God. And struggle they did. They became slaves in Egypt shortly after Um, They were founded, and after 430 years of slavery, God rescued them from Egypt. And that story turns out to be a template that is about a bigger rescue, and that is the rescue uh, of humanity from our slavery to sin. And then last week, we talked about the, the series of battles that next came in Israel's history. Right after they were rescued out of Egypt, they entered into a series of battles. And those visible battles, we looked at the first two of them, really point to the invisible battles that animate every visible struggle we have. And as we fight with and deal with the impact of sin in our own hearts and in our own world. Today, we're going to cover the rest of the Old Testament portion of the Bible. That's a thousand years of history, 33 books of the Bible. That's half of the books of the Bible in 35 minutes. Now, obviously, I I don't have time to tell you the entire story or even some of the other high points in the story, but in this series, we're just identifying the major themes in the hopes that you might go back and read these parts of the story and eventually read the entire story if you haven't. The theme that best describes this part of the Bible is leadership. For a thousand years, Israel's history was a series of ups and downs, with more downs than up. And in every case, the reason was leadership. Now, we tend to think of leadership as kind of an irritating reality that we have to put up with. You know, if you want a paycheck, at least initially, you'll probably have to put up with a boss. And you may eventually become your own boss, but then you discover you've got about five or eight or ten bosses that you now work for in terms of clients that determine what you do. But leadership is not an irritation in the way God has designed things. It's not a minor part of God's epic story that occasionally interrupts the more noble themes. No, it's a major theme that continues to show up again and again. The reason is that, that God intends to teach us two very important lessons as we encounter and deal with leadership over the course of our life. The first lesson, the first point in your outline is God is in charge. 
This is the first and really the most important lesson of leadership. God himself is in charge. He is the authority from which all authority is derived. Now, our top problem is sin, which at its core is the rejection of God's authority in our lives. And it's why we struggle with authority in general, not just God's authority. And it is the presence of human authority, really from the day we're born until the day we die, that is a constant reminder of God's invisible authority over us. And we ignore God's authority and the lesser human authorities to our detriment. One of the better known expressions of God's authority is the Ten Commandments. And commandment number five addresses authority in general. And this is what it says as it's re-read in Ephesians 6, verses 2 through 3, about commandment number five. This is commandment number five, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it might go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Now, the commandment is said, honor your father and mother, that it might go well with you and that you might enjoy long life on the earth. But in this phrase, it makes the observation, this is the first commandment that has a promise attached to it. The truth is, this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that has a promise that's attached to it. And the promise is that it's, if you do this, it's going to go well with you, and your life is going to be longer. Now, as Americans, we're not very convinced that God's involved at that level in life, that he really can do this. We think of God as kind of a distant being that helps us from time to time. The thought that God would actually increase or decrease the number of our problems or increase or decrease the number of our days is pretty surprising to us. But it turns out God is not just watching at a distance. He's not just observing things unfold and maybe making some comments and some gasps about it. No, he is in charge. Now, he made us free which means we do not have to obey him. That's why sin entered into the world. That makes life very complicated. But he is still in charge, even if we rebel against him. And we first learn about this authority thing from our parents. That's why it's prominent in commandment number five, honor your father and mother. This is your first exposure to and your first chance to learn this important lesson. It is at home that we are to learn that This world isn't ours to do with as we please, that we are not at the top of this world and that everything is not to revolve around us. Now, every child grows up thinking that that's the way it is, and every parent has the responsibility of lovingly but consistently informing their children that they do not run the universe. It's a very important thing for children to learn. And if they learn this, boy, we bless them with that because it translates into a much better life. And the reason it translates into a better life is because it fits with the very fabric of reality. This is a world that is not only under the authority of God, but it also has, because of that, authority structures woven into the very fabric of the way things are. And if we learn this young, it's just going to go better for us. Now, it's not going to go perfect because, well, this world is not perfect and neither are we. But all things considered, it's going to go better for the person who handles authority well than for the person who is a knothead and continues to buck authority. What this is saying is how you handle authority is really whether you're going to have more or less problems or more or less days in your life. Now, commandment number five isn't the only place that we hear this phrase, that it might go well with you. It's a phrase that shows up 19 times in the Bible. 
And every time it shows up, it's attached to this condition of authority. It's obey authority, respect authority, honor authority, that it might go well with you every single time. So it turns out that in God's understanding, dishonoring those in authority is the single biggest risk factor in life. Now, we, we usually don't know that. We know about all kinds of other risk factors. We know that, well, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, well, that's a risk. We know that eating a you know, bad diet, a high-fat diet, that's a risk. We know that driving around without seatbelts, well, that's a risk. We know all kinds of risks in life, but most people don't know this one. And this is the single biggest risk factor in life. You know, if you smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, I, I can't predict when health problems will occur for you. But I can pretty, pretty accurately predict that it's going to cause health problems. I don't know when and what, but it's going to increase the risk of health problems. I, of course, can't tell you how much you're going to cut your life short if you smoke that much a day, but I can pretty well predict that it's going to be shorter than if you hadn't done that. It's the same way with authority. You know, if a person decides to dishonor authority, you can't tell them, well, you've just added 10 more problems to your life today because of what you did. No, it's not that accurate. But you can know that this person is going to have more problems now. I don't know how many. I don't know when. But they're just going to have more problems. You can't tell a person who's dishonoring authority how much shorter their life is going to be. You can just predict that it's probably going to be shorter. You see, God's blessing is, is kind of like a river. A river has a current to it that allows things to, to move and float on the river. And that's the way God's blessing is. It's a current of help that can be added to your own efforts. You can go much further in a river than you can walking on your own. You can carry much more in a river than you can carrying something on your own. And the banks of God's river of blessing are marked on both sides by authority. We step into this river of blessing when we decide to honor and submit to the authority that God has put in our life. Now, if you're under bad leaders, well, then change if you can. But don't get out of the river of authority and say, I'm done with rivers. I'm walking the rest of my life. No, just get into another river of authority. They're not perfect. There are boulders and there are rapids and there are problems. But again, all things considered, you're just going to be able to progress much further in life if you stay in the river of authority, in the river of God's blessing. Outside, well, life's just harder. So the first lesson of leadership is that God himself is in charge. The second lesson that we're going to focus on the rest of our time is that leaders have great influence. They have great influence. Israel had two basic types of leaders. They had judges and they had kings. The period of the judges came first. You can read about the judges in the book of Judges, one of the books in the Old Testament. And the leaders of Israel at this period of time were called judges because the nation of Israel was not passing new laws. Most nations are continually passing new laws, but God had already given Israel all of her laws. So they were not making up new laws. The focus now was, the goal now was, how do we apply God's laws to life? And that's what judges do. But these judges didn't just sit in a courtroom and make decisions. God raised them up, each one of them, to lead his people out of the oppression of the surrounding nations. 
And as God would raise a leader up and rescue them from some horrible situation, then things would go well for now. But then once the judge died, things would always get much worse. In fact, here's the description of it in Judges 2, verses 18 and 19. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt. This cycle went on for 300 years. The point of the judges, the period of the judges in Israel's history really is this. Without leaders, life is much worse. And we tend to think that what we really need most in life is freedom. No constraints. No authority. That that would be the best possible way things could go. But that's not what the history of really the world shows, and in particular this piece of Israel's history. The bottom always came when there was no leader. It was the absence of a leader. Now, you still see this today. Do you remember when the Arab Spring broke out and one horrible dictator after another was removed from power? Oh, the world was just euphoric about what was going to happen and how the Middle East was going to change and it was going to be so good after these people had lived under these horrible leaders for so many decades, in some cases centuries. But what happened? It didn't turn out that way. In most cases, not in every, but in most cases, life has gotten worse for the average person living in the Middle East and these nations. Not better. Why? Well, in places like Libya, they replaced a bad leader. You know, Muammar Gaddafi was awful, oppressive, horrible. But they replaced him with who? Nobody. There's no real leader now in Libya. And that place is worse for the average people living there than it was even under that horrible leader. And you can see this story over and over again throughout the Middle East. We think that we just need freedom, but we need more than just freedom. Even if you look back to the history of our own nation, it wasn't that Declaration of Independence that made us the nation that we are, the great nation that we are. It wasn't the fact that we, we won our independence from England and we became a free nation. You know what made us great as a nation? It was those leaders. It was the George Washingtons of the day that led us to be a great nation. Oh, the Declaration and the Constitution, those are all critical, but it was the leaders that led in the formation of these things. It wasn't just freedom. It was freedom combined with good leadership. That's part of why we enjoy the fruits now, over 200 years later, of our blessed nation because of the good leaders. On our own, we're just going to decline. Without leaders, things just always get worse. Judges 21, verse 25, says this. This is the last verse in the book of Judges. It says, In those days Israel had no king, Everyone did as they saw fit. That's the way it ended up. So the point of the judges is without leaders, life is much worse. It's much worse. But the problem under the judges was they had no succession plan. As soon as a leader died, there was no plan in place for a future leader. And so after the leader died, anarchy would take over and everything would decline. So they demanded a king. Why? Because a king comes with a succession plan. You know, the line is continued through the king, the son, 
and then the next son, and the next son. There's a plan, at least, for ongoing leadership. So they demanded a king, and for the next 800 years, the nation of Israel had 42 kings. But the period of kings made it clear that you need more than just any old leader. Because without good leaders, life is still worse. And without leaders in general, life is much worse. No leaders, anarchy reigns. The average person lives a horrible life. But without good leaders, life still is worse. Of the 42 kings, 32 were evil. Now, we might be able to give a list, and I could have composed a list with all the names and the good and the bad, but you have to understand for the people living during this time, this wasn't just a fact of history. This was their lives. They experienced this. When an evil leader came into power, boy, it was the people that paid a price. This is the way it usually works. Under bad leadership, it's the people who tend to suffer the most. It's the children of bad parents that pay the biggest price. It's the employees of bad leaders that often lose the most. It's those under the le bad leadership of a nation that, boy, it really hits them. So the problem under the judges was that there was no succession plan. There's no leadership plan over time. The problem, though, under the kings was there was no removal plan. You got a bad leader, <laughs> well, you were stuck. And it's interesting to me that the founders of our nation they stated this themselves. They learned these two lessons from the Bible, and they set up a plan for both. A succession plan by voting and the rule of law, a removal plan. And the result, again, has been tremendous blessing for many. Leaders have great influence. In the book of Isaiah, we find a very interesting summary, a summary evaluation that God gives of the bad leaders that dominated so much of Israel's history. Here's God's summary statement of these bad leaders. This is what it says in Isaiah 56, 9 through 12. It says, Come, all you beasts of the field, come and devour. All you beasts of the forest, Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. They seek their own gain. Come, each one cries. Let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer, and tomorrow will be like today or even far better. It's just going to get better. Now, what's interesting is the statement at the beginning, a call is made to the beasts of the field to come and devour Israel. It's a call for devastation on the nation of Israel. Now, who made this call? God's not making this call. This isn't a verbal call. No one is saying, okay, let down all the defenses. Just let whatever enemy there is just come and destroy us as a nation. No one is saying this. It's not a verbal invitation. It's an invitation that arises from the fact that the leaders of Israel were not leading well. Good leadership provides protection, and bad leadership invites destruction. It's a call to the wolves of destruction. If it's a family, if it's a business, if it's a nation, bad leadership just says, come tear this up. 
destruction will follow. And God gives three visuals to help us understand the impact that these bad leaders had. And I highlighted them in this verse for you as we were reading it. God says they're like blind watchmen. That's the first image. Secondly, they're like lazy dogs. And thirdly, they're like lost shepherds. Each of these images points to the three key responsibilities that leaders have. And what's interesting is the first three kings of Israel struggled with each one of these three in order. Saul struggled with the first one. He was the first king. David struggled with the second one. He was the second king. Solomon struggled with the third one. He was the third king of Israel. So what I want to do in the time we have left is, is look through these three images and state it from a positive side. of This is what good leaders provide. It's stated negatively in this verse, but I want to flip it on the good side and talk about this is the blessing that God intends to give us through leaders. And this is the way I I want you to address these three images that we're going to look through. First of all, I would encourage you to use these three ideas as a basis for prayer for those who are in leadership over you. Good leaders provide these three. Pray for the leaders over you, that they would do these three. Secondly, I would, I would encourage you to use these three to choose your leaders. We live in a time of tremendous freedom in our nation. If you get a bad boss, you can find another job. You're not slaves. Now, you may not be able to get out of some situations, but I would encourage you to use these three as you evaluate your leaders and maybe choose. If you get a situation where you're going to choose between leaders and where you're going to go, Use these three. You're not going to find a perfect one, but use these three to find a better one. And then lastly, I would encourage you to use these three to grow personally as a leader. I would say most people in this room have some positions of leadership. It's in your family. Maybe it's in the work environment. You have a position of leadership. These are challenges to you as they are challenges to me to lead in this way. The purpose of leadership is not so that you could privilege yourself, but so that you could bless the people under you. And this is how you do it. Number one, good leaders look ahead. They're watchmen. That's the first image. They're like watchmen. The problem with Israel's watchmen is what? They're blind. Well, that's a problem because the most essential quality of a watchman is that they can see. Ancient cities in the Bible had watchmen that were responsible to warn the inhabitants of the city about approaching danger. You know, the cities were fortified with walls and gates, and that provided protection. And the fields surrounded these walled cities. So what what occurred is while work was being done in the fields, the watchmen would be in these watchtowers elevated above the fields, and they would scan the horizon looking for signs of danger. And if they saw danger, they would warn everyone working the fields. And the walls only were provide protection if you could get inside the city before the danger arrived. That was the purpose of the watchman. And really, that's a great image for what a leader does. Leaders look into the future and get ready for what's coming. Now, they can't see everything. Just like a watchman, he can only see up to the horizon. But leaders, one of the key functions of a leader is to lift their head up above whatever's going on right now and look into the future and try to get what they lead ready for that future. That's 
one of the blessings of leadership. Now, what that does, if a leader does this well, is it allows those who are under them to focus on the task at hand without being full of anxiety. I mean, imagine if you're one of the people working in the fields, and you look up at the watchtower, and you see your watchman kind of just flayed out fast asleep. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to kind of start working in the field with one hand and kind of scan the horizon with the other eye, right? You're not going to be able to focus, but you're going to be full of anxieties. Oh, no, the person who's looking out for us is not looking out for us. This is what happens in organizations. You know, wives who are married to men who just don't ever look into the future and do any planning, they get really nervous. And they, they just don't have the freedom to focus on some things that God designed to help family life work together. Same thing happens in businesses and organizations. I mean, people have sense, and they can tell as a leader, if, if you're not looking into the future, they get nervous. And the productivity of the organization just begins to decline because they're looking with one eye at the future because you're not. Saul was the first king of Israel. And he, from a physical standpoint, boy, he looked the part. This is a description of Saul in 1 Samuel 9, verse 2. It said, Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anybody else. Well, when Saul was selected, everyone was like, yes, that's what we're talking about. That's the kind of leader we want. That's the kind of king that we can follow. Now, he was a great watchman physically because, I mean, he didn't even need a watchtower. He'd just stand up and he could see real far because he was really tall. But what's interesting is, sadly, his ability to, to see physically into the future did not extend into his leadership. And Saul did what many bad leaders do. He got fixated on keeping his position and his power, and he went absolutely stone blind to the future. It all came to a head when the Philistines, a neighboring nation, assembled an army to attack Israel. So Saul assembled the army of Israel to defend themselves. And God gave clear instructions to Saul through the prophet Samuel at the time to wait for Samuel to come and pray and offer sacrifices to God and ask for help. But time went on and the men are getting nervous and they're getting scared and some are starting to desert and others are talking about it. And so Saul, he just decides, I'm going to take care of this now. And he heads on without Samuel. And then when Samuel does arrive, this is what Samuel says in 1 Samuel 13, verse 13. He says to Saul, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Samuel said, you were foolish. Now in English, we've got a couple other words that we could use for fool. You know, stupid, dumb, foolish, that's about it. But in the Hebrew language, which is the language that God revealed himself through in the Old Testament, there's nine ways you can be stupid. There's nine ways you can be foolish, nine Hebrew words. And the word that's used here means impulsive. And this is what Saul did. All he could see was what's going on. Oh, no, I'm going to lose my power. I'm going to lose my army. i got to do something now. He, he just got his head stuck in the crisis of the moment and didn't look any further. You know, if you're an impulsive leader, you're blind to the future. All you can see is what's around you. Saul ended his reign, holed up in his palace, 
throwing spears at threats and shadows. He went mad. He went crazy. Not only did he become blind to the future, he became blind to the present. He lost touch with reality. Good leaders look ahead. The second thing that's true about a good leader is good leaders speak up. They are like watchdogs. Now, the problem with Israel's leaders, the bad leaders, were they says they are mute dogs. They cannot bark. Well, that's kind of pointless. I mean, the most essential quality of a watchdog is that they can bark when they sense danger. In the same way, one of the most important parts of being a leader is to bark. Not in anger, but to use your voice to address problems that come up. You know, the, ma- the major work of a leader is? The major work of a leader is to solve problems. That's what leaders do. Most of the time, they're solving problems. If children could be naturally raised to be amazing people without any input, they wouldn't need parents. They wouldn't need leaders. If people could just gather together and produce amazing products and services and work in harmony, they wouldn't need leaders. But in a fallen world, that doesn't happen. And so leaders are solving problems again and again and again. And what that means is leaders must be willing to have difficult conversations, to use their voice. You see, leaders know that problems can't be solved just by staring at them, just by planning the solution. They eventually are going to have to write up an email at least or stand in front of a group of some people and say, here's what we got to do. Here's how we're going to solve this problem. They got to use their voice. The problem with Israel's leaders is in the moment of problem, they go mute. They don't make a sound. Why? That gives two reasons. Number one, they're sleeping. They're fast asleep. Now, it's not talking about physical sleep here. This is what it says. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. Basically, they're living in fantasy land. They're off in la-la land doing something else, not solving problems. What's the second reason? They're eating. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. And they, they get focused on their own needs, not the needs of the, of the organization or the group that they're leading. David was the second king of Israel. Now, unlike Saul, he did not at all look the part. In fact, when everyone saw David, they were like, huh, really? King, huh? When God identified the family where the next king would come from, everyone thought it would be one of David's brothers. And actually, they lined up an order, and God told Samuel the prophet he would let him know which one it was. And so they started with the oldest and the most impressive, and they kept going down and ran out of brothers by the time they got to David. And so David was it. Everyone was surprised, including Samuel. And this is what we read in 1 Samuel 6, 17. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or height, for I have rejected him, speaking of one of the older brothers. The Lord does not look at the things God look, people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God said, David, David's got a heart that's that's interested in what I'm interested in. He's the leader. And David turned out to be the best leader Israel ever had. I mean, even today, most people in Israel will say, King David didn't get any better than that. Again and again, David would speak up, and he would direct his people back to God's truth. In fact, the largest book in the Bible is Psalms. Most of it 
contain the words of David. Under David, Israel prospered. He spoke up again. He was not a mute dog. But even David was muzzled for a time. Even David went quiet for a time. It occurred because of this fantasy world and personal appetites. He pursued the dream of another woman and satisfied his appetites in an affair with her. Now notice in what is said about the watchdog in the images in Isaiah, the watchdog doesn't leave. The watchdog doesn't run off. That's not the problem. The watchdog's still there. It's just that the, the watchdog's not doing the watchdog duties. It's not doing the job. And like most leaders, David didn't walk away from his leadership. He didn't quit being king. He didn't walk away on the outside. He walked away on the inside. Now, David did eventually repent, and God did forgive. But all kinds of people for generations paid a steep price for David's dog days. And this happens to many leaders today. You know, they start out strong. They address problem after problem. Those under them are blessed. And then eventually, either in the midpoint of life or usually it's 50s and 60s, they get tired, they get discouraged, and they decide to go selfish just for a while. And they indulge in some form of fantasy. It may not be an affair, something else. And the people under them, boy, they pay a price when the dog goes quiet. So good leaders look ahead. Good leaders speak up. Lastly, good leaders lead by example. They're like shepherds. But these bad leaders, they're shepherds who lack understanding. They're shepherds who get lost. Well, again, that's the most critical part of a shepherd, that he not get lost. We are often referred to as sheep in Scripture. And shepherds do not lead sheep from behind by barking out commands or even cracking whips or on horseback. No, sheep will not budge, no matter how much you yell at them. Shepherds must lead from the front, by example. They must walk first, and then the sheep will follow. That's the way we're led. We're led by example. Show me. You take the risk, then I'll do it. You got to lead from the front. Solomon was the third king of Israel. And at the beginning of his reign, God offered him a blank check. God said, Solomon, I loved your father, David. And therefore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grant any, anything you want as you begin your rule. Solomon wisely asked for wisdom. And God granted this request. And Solomon became the wisest man to ever live. He had tremendous understanding. He was not a shepherd who lacked understanding. He, he really had understanding. In fact, rulers from all around the world came to learn from him how to lead. He wrote the wisdom books in the Bible, the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. If you've never read those, so much wisdom and great stuff in those books. But then Solomon went stupid. He went dumb. He lost his understanding personally in his life. Why? Because he stopped doing it. He stopped leading by example. What does it say here about why do shepherds lack understanding? They seek their own gain. They get selfish. 
You know, Solomon had warned, had spent many chapters in Proverbs warning both men and women about the dangers of, of lust and its addictive qualities and how it can just tear people apart. And then he went on to marry 700 wives. So what is it, Solomon, what you said or what you did? Well, it was two Solomons. It was the wise Solomon and the dumb Solomon. Many a leader has followed in the path of Solomon. Their success has gone to their heads, and they've sought their own gain, and they've stopped leading by example. The kinds of things they did to really help things move forward in family life or in the organization, they just get selfish. They decide to cash in all that they've led for themselves. And when that happens, again, it's the followers who pay a steep price. Solomon's divided heart. Here's the truth. Here's what I'm going to do. Solomon's divided heart led to a divided kingdom. After Solomon, the nation of Israel was split in two. And for the next 400 years, Israel went through one horrible civil war after another. It weakened them, it destroyed them, and it all started with the leader. Isn't that amazing? One leader cast a shadow that's 400 years long. That's tremendous. Finally, the nation of Israel is defeated, and the people are exiled to Babylon. Now what? Is God done with his people? Is God no longer involved? Well, the grandson of one of the last kings of Israel gives them this piece of advice while they're sitting in Babylon, in exile. Here's what he says in 2 Kings 25, verse 24. Gedaliah took an oath to reassure them and their men. Here's what he said. Do not be afraid of the Babylonian officials, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon. And what? There it is. It will go well with you. There it is again. They're in exile in a new country with a godless king. What's going to happen? Well, this grandson of one of the former kings of Israel says, I don't know what's going to happen. But I can tell you this, respect the king, and it's going to go better. You know, God can bless even through a godless king like the king of Babylon at the time. He can even bless through the irritating boss that you're working under right now. Now, if they demand that you disobey God, well, then you've got to get out of that river, and if you can't, you've got to resist it. But don't go independent. Don't go off-road and out of the river all by yourself. Next week, we reach the pinnacle of God's epic story. And it comes as we introduce the person who was crucified with these words over the cross, King of Kings, leader of all leaders. And the one who was announced as the one who finally came to bring the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, the one we talk about next week, is the answer to every problem found in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is just a sample of what's happened throughout all of human history around this world. Sin destroying people, leaders tearing up nations and companies and families. And Jesus came 
to establish his kingdom and his rule to answer the problem of sin and the problem of bad leaders. Now, before I close in prayer, I want to invite um, the Japan missions team to go ahead and come on up on stage. Uh, they're going to be leaving this week, so I want uh, to pray for them before they leave, and I want you to join with me as I pray. Um, back in December, I was able to, along with our youth, youth pastor, Matt Crystal, uh, visit Japan, Tokyo, and re-establish um, the relationship that we had formed with uh, Seiji and Kathy Oyama while they were here in Huntington Beach and a part of our church. Seiji is now pastoring a church in Tokyo, not many churches in Tokyo. They're doing a tremendous work in, uh, in the Tokyo area. And we got a chance to kind of imagine and dream about what we might be able to do to help them in their work there. And this team is the first expression of, of that. And so uh, Chip and Sue Williams are going to be leading this team. And so I've asked Chip to just share with us uh, some of what they're going to be doing, and then I'm going to lead us uh, in prayer. So, Chip. Thanks, Bevan. We, um, we're all really excited to represent Seabreeze on this trip to Japan. And uh, as Bevan mentioned, we're going to be partnering with uh, the Oyamas and their local church there in Tokyo. And some of the things we're going to be doing while we're there, uh, we'll be leading a basketball camp to junior high students at a local uh, school that they partner with. Uh, we'll also be doing some um, work around their church to support them and help them. And then we're going to be attending a family camp on the last weekend that we're there for their church that they do and uh, fellowshipping with their uh, members. So we're really excited about the trip. A couple things you guys can do to pray for us while we're there. Um, pray for the safe uh, trip and the healthiness of our team as we go. Uh, you can also pray for us during the basketball camp uh, that we might have opportunities to share uh, the gospel with some of the students. Also, uh, while we're at family camp, we're going to be looking to build some relationships with the um, families that are part of the local church there. And then also that we could just be a blessing and an encouragement to the Oyama family while they minister in Tokyo. So thank you, guys. All right. Thanks, Chip. So let's pray for them as they head out. Join me. Father, we thank you for um, what you're doing through the church that um, Seiji and Kathy uh, lead in Tokyo. We thank you for the privilege of being able to help them um, this coming week. We pray for this team that uh, represent you and represent us as they go out. We pray for their, their safety uh, in travel, their safety from sickness and disease. And God, we pray that you would help them to, to work well as a team together. Uh, I know that a lot of things have been planned, but as everything unfolds, there's going to be needs that come up that were unplanned and problems that were not foreseen. So I pray that you'd give them the ability to, to quickly sense what needs to be done and to be able to step in and, and help and address um, the opportunities and the problems that come up. And God, we just pray that um, um, there would be just a real openness on the part of the kids, in particular the parents, as they hear about Jesus. And we just pray, God, that, that your light would shine in this place uh, through this trip. And we ask this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.